gutted and refixed it on the inside to an updated house and double or triple what the house was worth within 90 days. Welcome, my friend, to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. And before we get into the show in today's episode, which I know you'll get a lot of value from because we're, we stay out of all the fluffy stuff and we get straight into the good stuff of real estate investing advice, I want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, and that's Patch of Land. Uh, they are making this show possible and they're making tons of flipping projects possible all across the country. If you don't know about Patch of Land, then they are the number one company to go to for uh, projects that you're flipping uh, because they have all the money available right now. Um, once you get approved for your your deal and yourself as a sponsor or a borrower, um, you're going to be funded by them. And then they go raise the money through their crowdfunding platform. So you don't have to worry about all that. They'll take care of the, the money and the funding for you. You just have to worry about making sure your project's, project's a success. Uh, they've got something really cool for you. So um, if you are just learning about crowdfunding, uh, they've come up with a guide. It's called the Top 10 Crowdfunding Questions Guide. And they're all the, the questions that you might be asking yourself. And they're all the answers. They don't leave you hanging. They've got answers too. All the answers to those, those 10 crowdfunding questions. So you can go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Uh, and if you think you know everything about crowdfunding, i check this guide out just in case because there are some interesting aspects that you'll learn. So go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. Best ever listeners, how you doing? I hope you're having a wonderful day or morning or evening, whatever time it is when you're listening to this. We've got a wonderful show for you today. And thank you so much for all of you who have done the five-star rating and review in iTunes. It means a lot and helps get the word out to, to more best ever listeners and grow our community. So if you haven't had an opportunity to do that, please go do that and um, you know share your thoughts. And if you've got any feedback for guests that you'd like to have on the show or any follow-up questions, then feel free to uh, put those in those comments in iTunes as well. And I, I read them as soon as they come in, believe me. So, so thanks a lot for that. On this show, we've interviewed many wonderful real estate investors, some who have been out there in the public eye, like Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank and Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad Poor Dad author Jay Papazon, who has co-authored many best-selling books with Gary Keller of Keller Williams. And today we've got a, a really interesting guest and his background's just remarkable. And he, he's kind of done it out of the public eye intentionally. And I think it's going to be interesting to talk to him about it. Today we've got with us Tarl Yarber. How you doing, Tarl? Good, Joe. How are you? Doing very well, my friend. And thank you for joining us. And Tarl's based out of Seattle, Washington. He became a wholesaler at the age of 19, and he's been doing this for a little over 10 years now. So that puts you, what, right at around 30 years old? Yes, sir. Uh, turned 30 back in October. Awesome. Well, happy way belated birthday. Slash, we should really be saying happy almost birthday, right? Yeah, coming up again. <laughs> I'm getting older. Yeah, yeah. He, he, his third deal made him 
$100,000. He's been involved in over 500 single-family flips. He currently purchases, on average, about seven homes a month, and he manages a $5 million fund with his business partner. And I asked him for his website, and he said he doesn't have a website. And he's, as, as he said, he's kind of doing it just through word of mouth there and growing his business. So we're going to talk to him about that. But before we get in, I get into some specific questions, Tarl, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure, Joe. Well, like you said, I got started when I was 19. And you mentioned Robert Kiyosaki. I was obsessed with him back then. And I never had any examples of anybody successful in my life. So I went to a seminar that talked about real estate wealth. And I was one of the few, or actually at the time, many people that bought one of these seminars on how to wholesale. And where I was the few was I was probably the only one in that seminar that actually did what the book said to do and actually went out there and started knocking on doors and chipping my teeth out there. And on my third deal, like you had mentioned, made over a hundred grand on a double escrow and that got me hooked into the business through a series of events. And then of course, you know, market crashes a few years later and uh, got us out for a little bit. And over the course of probably the past five years, we've gotten back into it pretty heavy. Right now we're mainly investing in Seattle and Portland markets, but over the years we've invested in Florida, Arizona, Chicago, California, Nevada. Uh, we're actually looking at opening up in New York City, believe it or not, right now, and getting back into Florida as well. So, a variety of different experiences with opening new markets. And it's just kind of led us to where we are today, where we kind of have, you know, I guess the uh, line by the tail, so I said, or something. Let's <laughs> uh, see if we continue to grow this business. And we focus uh, mainly on single family acquisitions for the purpose of flipping them to back to consumers and so forth for profit. Okay. So we're house flippers. Yeah, so you're house flippers and you're doing it in many markets. And I've, I've got a lot of questions for you, some pertaining to the $5 million fund that you've got with your business partner, some to kind of how you scaled it to other markets when you're flipping. But before we get into those, I'd like to ask you about something that you just mentioned. And you said you did, your third deal was you got $100,000 profit on a double escrow. Then I believe you said the market you know, with, with like, you know, when 2009 happened, I believe you said the market got us out of it for a little bit. Is that what you said? Yeah, back in, it's actually, believe it or not, back in 2007, I got out of it, not 2009. I got out of it before the market totally crashed. And not to say that we were geniuses and we foresaw anything happening or anything. We just, for me, myself personally, I was getting very tired of meeting my Starbucks barista saying that they're a real estate investor and or everybody in the entire market was so hot and heavy in real estate. And I was meeting not always the best people. I just got tired of the whole process of real estate at that time. So I backed out, sold everything we had at the time, and then just ended up getting pretty lucky. And but I'm not a genius by any means. It's strictly for selfish. I was tired of the business reasons. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, when market turns and we watch it for a little bit and then slowly by a series of circumstances kind of just got us accidentally back into the business and started forming new partnerships and new business relationships and uh, jumped on the bandwagon again and got back with the way the market is right now. It's been pretty good. So there was a hiatus of investing in active real estate business from 2007 to what, 2009? I'd probably say 2010, 2000, be almost 2011. So going on five years. 
So from 2007 to 2010 or 11, you weren't doing real estate investing. How did you make enough money prior to that? You were living off that money? I wish. (laughs) Yeah. So how are you supporting yourself? So when I was 20 years old, I got into, I dropped out of college and on top of, you know, doing my wholesale thing, I got into financial services. So I became a fully licensed financial professional at the time and started working in that industry while I was always learning money, money finances, how to run personal finances, as well as, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, that sort of thing. And kind of learning the behind the scenes of that from a personal financial investment advisor kind of an aspect. And I did that for almost six years in between real estate investing. So real estate investing at one time became a part-time gig and then it became a no-time gig. And then it got back into it. Now it's my full-time thing for the last almost five years. And But I got out of finances back in towards the end of 2010, beginning of 2011. So were you, were, you were a financial advisor working for a company? Yeah, we were. Um, I became a broker for them. So I ended up opening up offices down in California and running agents, you know, building up brokerages and training agents, just similar to a real estate broker, but on the financial side. And I learned a lot about money that way, learning a lot about building people up. I learned a lot about managing teams and, and allowing, which helps me now in my business today, major networking skills and also being able to empower others to get the most out of them so that they can do more for you and they want to and stay loyal and so forth. So that I got a tremendous amount of activity out of that, which helped me become more successful today in real estate. All right. Now that we've gotten brought ourselves up to today, let's talk about your business. Let's first talk about the the way you scale your, your single family flips in markets that you don't uh, live in. And I think it's a perfect segue because you just said building teams and empowering people. So it sounds like you learned a lot through your hiatus with real estate to apply now with what you're doing. So how how do you buy single family homes and how do you build those teams in other markets? Well, ultimately, what we do, uh, whenever we look at a new market, and just to clarify too, at today's point, we had backed out of a few markets maybe about two years ago when we had a partnership failing out. The new partnership that we started about a year and a half ago, we are now currently in Washington, Portland, and going into New York City. But in the past, we were in seven states. So if I want to talk more about that in particular, if I were to open up in, let's say, Chicago, and we were to go do that like we've done before, then when we fly out there before meeting anybody or before even flying out there, we start calling up everybody we know, asking them for referrals for people they know in that market. Uh, we stick with our center of influence as much as possible, maybe calling title companies, maybe calling um, other real estate agents, going on to the REO uh, websites for like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, looking who the mover and shakers are for those listing agents, getting to know them, and just hitting up any type of personal contact we can get prior to even flying out and exploring the market. Because then we can ask lots of questions. We can talk to you know, locals. We can get referrals from contractors uh, and so forth. And what you'll find, especially in today, which I think most people find is the world's becoming smaller and smaller, especially in the real estate world, to where we can do a deal with somebody in Chicago and that real estate agent knows a friend of ours in Florida because they went, they met at a networking event in Dallas or whatever. And and good people talk to good people and they continue to network. And the movers and shakers in any market uh, 
you know, other movers and shakers in other markets. So that's our first step. And once we gather those names, we start calling everybody. We start setting up meetings for initial times. If it's still worth going to that area, we do market research. Uh, we call up the local title companies, like I had said, and get them to do research for us. And we pull all that data uh, and we see what kind of dollar amount are we going to have to put out into this area to be able to get the profit that we want. Do we need to do high volume with low margin or do we, can we do low volume with high margin? Uh, and once we fly out there, the real key, not to drag this on, is don't get locked in with one or two people on your team right away. Allow multiple people onto your team in the beginning and let the best kind of the cream rise to the top. So to give you an example with flipping, what we'll do and what I've done many, many times is if I have a, a wholesaler, an off-market person, refer me a property in some state that I'm only just getting into. Well, I also have a list of five of the top real estate agents that I've been able to find that deal with investors that already have a mini relationship with me because we've met with coffee or we've gotten to know each other a little bit through my one or two visits already. And the second I get that property, I send it to all five real estate agents. And they all know ahead of time that they're competing for our business. So we're going to see you know, what they come back with. And through that, we can kind of find and justify through those five agents where kind of the truth is with what maybe the after repair value is, the current value of the home, that sort of thing. But yet we never had to do any of the physical work ourselves yet. We have other people doing that because that agent's going to want the lists back. They're going to want our future business and so forth, which we give once we start building those relationships. So that's one minor step that we do quite a bit of. And then once we're entrenched in an area, it's narrowed down to maybe two agents that we work with all the time because we built those relationships. Same with contractors. You send out five contractors to get bids, not three, especially in a new market. Uh, and then you send out independent when that works being started. I'll call, get Craigslist people or I'll get uh, other real estate agents. I'll send out two or three people a week that are all independent of each other to go take photos of that property while the repairs are being done so that I'm not just trusting the contractor that the repairs are being done. So, And this is just a constant checks and balances system that we do and we continue to implement to make sure that what we're being told living out of state is actually the facts. And by having more than one person involved really helps us benefit it and continue to hopefully make a profit at the end of the day. How are you able to micromanage that process so closely when you know you've got multiple projects happening? I mean, if if you've got contractors sending you pictures and then you're also finding people on Craigslist to go do the same thing, is there an end to that once you have your contractor in place, or do you still do the kind of the double follow up on an ongoing basis? Once we're because we're out of state, like this is Swiss comes also to Joe by lots of mishaps and trials and errors and stuff too. So we've had our run-ins with, you know, trusting the one contractor that we really liked in another state and then getting basically screwed, for lack of a better word, and finding out later. So there's been, that's happened more than once to us to where we now learn that even though we might truly trust this contractor per se, they all have a shelf life. Something happens in their business, maybe something happens in their personal life, maybe they have too much work going on, and they're not paying attention to our properties or, or whatever. So if we have at least the realtor and then one other independent person checking on that property on a regular basis that's separate from the contractor, then that once that relationship's been established, then we'll always constantly do that no matter what. And that way you're always having other points of view besides 
you know, just one. And then in order to keep track of that, you know, we heavily use Dropbox for photos. And uh, then we have, like right now, you know, I'll have, you know, my assistant and stuff. She'll check all those photos regularly for us. And we have a project manager on staff now that's internal. But that's only because we've gotten to that level that we can do that. And does any of that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So now we've gotten up to the point where you've picked a market mm-hmm. and you have the team in place and you've identified that. Oh, I do have a follow up question because you mentioned the <laughs> oh, imagine that you mentioned when you look at a market initially, you see what dollar amount we will need to do in that area. So you said, for example, high volume, low margin or low volume, high margin. Which one would you prefer of those two? That's a fantastic question and something that we've internally between me and my business partner have talked about many, many times. And we've come to the point where like it's a lot easier and a lot less stressful to deal with the low margin. I'm sorry, the low volume, uh, high margin than it is to do the high volume, low margin. We've been in markets recently pulled out of Atlanta because that was a high volume, low margin, and the headaches involved with that were just too many versus, you know, where you know, I live here in Seattle, and believe it or not, it's not high mar- high volume, but it's definitely very high uh, margin. And we've learned that over the years that, you know, why don't we just stick to doing that and, you know, do one house that pays us as much as doing three houses in another market. So we're, we'd like to continue focusing on that more. The downside to it, though, is that you know, you're spreading, you're not spreading your risk out as much, and which is where your systems come into play and buying correctly and knowing your numbers um, very well. So that way, if you don't lose your, lose everything on one house. And so uh, that's kind of where we're at now. And is that one of the driving reasons for why you're doing New York City? I mean, I imagine New York City is going to be a low, low turn, high margin, low volume, high margin market. That's correct. Yeah, that's that's one of the number one reasons. And what uh, we found with me being here in Seattle, moving here not that long ago, was you have when you have for flip markets. If we want to talk about one of the ways that I kind of figured out where solid flip markets are, is has to do with like a lack of development, lack of land. Uh, Seattle is a major metropolitan area, but yet it's you can't really build here anymore. <laughs> you have a lot of really old homes that are 1890, 1920, 1930 homes that are have beautiful views, but they've never, ever, ever been updated. And you're not going to have a developer come in and build a subdivision in Seattle. There's no place to do it. So just like San Francisco or any place like that, you're going to have fewer, a fewer amount of supply, but you're going to have a huge amount of demand. And you can take one of these houses that is in the inner city and turn it into a beautiful home, either by rebuilding it or doing what we do, which is just gut it and refix it on the inside to an updated house and double or triple what the house was worth within 90 days. And so that's that's kind of where we got that model and what I've learned over the years with better markets for flipping. It's kind of like you can't really build in the area for the high margin area. So New York City seems to be like a good area. I could be wrong. We're still doing um, all our market analysis on that right now. And uh, we haven't officially bought anything there yet. We're just only starting to dip our toes in the water there. And now let's let's transition to the five million dollar fund. Okay. How did you did you were you actively raising money for that fund? Uh, that came with my business partnership. So uh, as far as that's concerned, I've raised money in the past. We've always 
uh, how to raise money in order to buy as many houses we've done. The particular fund that we've raised at this time, I do have to give credit to my business partner. He's done the majority of that. So um, it's all from high net worth individuals that uh, want a better rate of return than what they're getting at the stock market at this time. And through the relationships that we've had, uh, it's added to the fund. And in some relationships, we've we've actually recently consolidated to be smaller because just like the high volume, low margin, we were doing at one time, the fund was much bigger, but that was because it was with a lot of smaller investors. And the amount of babysitting we had to do with that wasn't worth it to where we started eliminating it to just a few high net individuals that have been with us since the beginning and, you know, have that relationship with us and they're not as hard to manage. So we've actually purposely reduced it because of that. But that comes back to you're giving a certain rate of return per year to these individuals and stuff. And and it's if you remember with you know how house flipping is, it's based off of income. It's an income tax, not a capital gains tax when you're when you're flipping these houses and so forth. So because of that, we have to give a higher rate of return. I mean, if we just gave somebody like a 12% at the end of the year based off of their money, and it's because they're partners in this fund, they still have to pay their income tax. So we technically have to raise about 15 16% within the fund. They'll pay it out in order to make up for their income tax that they're going to pay. And that keeps them involved with us. So as long as we're transparent with everything we're doing, and they can see that between me and my business partner, we roughly, you know, I have a little over 500. He has a little over like seven or 800 plus underneath his belt. So they see a tremendous amount of professionalism and experience. They continue to keep their money in there with us. And he manages it. And then I buy the houses. So that's kind of where our partnership stays. And you said you've consolidated so that there's a fewer, but fewer investors, but you know, kind of higher level investors, meaning they put in more money. Roughly, how many investors would you say you have in the $5 million fund? I believe there's about seven, seven or eight, if I have to remember correctly. Seven or eight. So what is that, like around 750000 on average per investor? Correct. Okay, interesting. And, you know, with the, you said you manage the, the investments and your partner manages the fund. I understand the active role that managing the investments would take, but as far as managing the fund itself, once it's set up and once the investors have their money, other than is it just reporting and, I guess, distributions that is required, or what, what does your partner do exactly for when, they manage, when he manages the fund? That's a great question. We joke about that. Like now, he his also job is to raise more money to you and also focus heavily on leveraging that fund as much as possible. But uh, at the end of the day, I do joke with him that he works a heck of a lot less than I do. So, <laughs> so that's an excellent question. I should find out more how to answer that. Yeah, I just poked the bear, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, right. And then uh, no, it works out great. I mean, we have we both have our strengths and weaknesses, and and it complements each other. So. With that said, yeah, I mean that's the most that's the most I can tell you at this time. Got it. Fair enough. You did list a good amount of of what needs to be done, but there is additional items and uh, that are internal that we work with inside the company. So, absolutely. Well, before we get your best advice ever, I want to ask one last question that I, I mentioned at the very beginning of the show when we started talking, when I was introducing you. Why have you chosen to be so you know, off the radar 
when dealing with kind of the, your business compared to you know putting your your name out there and having a website already? I mean, you've been in the business for eleven years. What's the reason behind all that? And the follow up is why have you chosen to change your approach and become you know more public now? Well, to be honest with you, I'm not really I'm not a private person by any means, but I'm also not a social media person at all. I've never really cared about that stuff too much. And the reason behind it for business wise, it might not have been the best business move in my career or anything like that, but I also have never needed to. When I built my financial business at that time, everything was word of mouth and referral based. And I never needed to market. You know, we had I built up well over four hundred clients in about two years, but I never needed to market. And it was all just doing what's right for people all the time. And then in our real estate business, I had a breaking out and I just kind of transitioned into that where I didn't even think about it. I'm like, why do I need a website? And it all came from word of mouth, meeting people, networking face-to-face, kneecap to kneecap, doing what's right for everybody all the time as far as in a business transaction. And just word kind of gets around at that point. As far as when I thought about a website, number one, if I really do enjoy learning lots of things, but for some reason, when a web developer talks to me about how a website's made, I just zone out and I have zero interest in <laughs> anything about it whatsoever. And, and I'm trying to fight that right now, but this maybe it's just me being, you know, not wanting to learn it. But but I've never been asked this question before, so bear with me. But the but the ultimate decision really just fell back to where I didn't think we needed it, and. I didn't need to deal with the public. I didn't, when it came to other investors, they already knew me because they saw the houses we did and they saw, and they were referred out to me by other people that I trusted. And when it came to partnering with others or doing joint ventures, it was all based off of results. I didn't need to go hunt them down. It all kind of came to us or to me at the time. And it wasn't needed. Now, it's actually more, I've learned that I truly enjoy to answer the other end of your question, I truly enjoy teaching others and helping others that are newer investors kind of get through the struggles and issues of learning how to do this uh, interesting business. And and it's I I read a, I read a book I wish I knew what it was called I can't think of it otherwise, but it talked about how to build a social media presence and it actually led me to to bigger pockets which were which is where you and I met and I really started enjoying answering forum questions, you know, showing people some of the houses we've done so that they can learn. And we're going to build our website probably in the next 60 days, but it's going to be more geared, geared towards that. It's more of like a, hey, here's what we did. Here's what we do. You know, that kind of a thing. Learn from us. You know, not charge anything for it like those gurus do. It's just more something we can direct people towards if they want to learn more. And then at the end of the day, on a selfish reason for business-wise, I learned that if I teach wholesalers and I teach other house flippers, house flippers to buy houses, they'll send me deals. <laughs> so, you know, the new wholesaler will sit there and send me their first deal or the house flipper that needs money is going to send me their deal to joint venture because I, I help them through whatever situations they're in. And that's on a selfish reason. That's probably the business aspect of that. Makes sense. And do you know what the website URL will be once you have the website up and running? That's probably going to be, I mean, we have, you know, my company, which is fixatedrealestate.com. We already own that URL, so it'll be that. What is it? We spell that? Fixated. It's like being a, you know, you're fixated on something. F-I-X-A-T-E-D, realestate.com. Awesome. All right, Taro, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Well, I think of that, that's the only one thing comes to mind. And that's to be a professional, not an amateur in this business. And if you want me to expand on that, it's really just more of professionals get paid and amateurs don't. 
And in this, especially in house flipping, there's a tremendous amount of newbies versus veterans. And if you go even further, there's a tremendous more of amateurs in business than professionals. And professionals, you know, they always do what they say they're going to do. They do win-win uh, solutions for everybody. They they basically, they, they don't have to worry about finding deals as much because if everybody knows you're going to close on a deal or that you're going to do what you say you're going to do, they're going to send you their deals. So when I hear newer investors or other investors complain about how it's so competitive or they can't find a property anywhere, we don't struggle with that on our end because... When somebody sends us a deal, they know we're going to get back to them right away. They know that we're going to answer our phone. They know that we're going to treat them fairly. We're never going to take advantage of them or anything like that. And it allows us to have better systems in place and outbeat all the amateurs in the business, for lack of a better term. So does all that make sense? Yep, makes sense. Be a professional, not an amateur. That's right. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Do it. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners crowdfunding. You've heard about it. Now it's time for you to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor today, Patch of Land, they're the leading expert in the crowdfunding space and they've got all the answers to all of your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-A-N-D.com forward slash best ever. What's the best ever book you've read? four-hour work week by Timothy Ferris. Best ever personal growth experience and what'd you learn from it? All right. Well, the only thing I could think of is that a few years back, I flew on a plane all the time and I, to be morbid, I learned that, you know, we don't really live very long in this life because I always thought about what happened if the plane crashed when I was flying constantly. And it taught me to not take today for granted. And when I, got, when I would get off the plane, I'd call the people I love, tell them I love them. When I would be in a transaction, I would make sure that everybody won because I just wanted to be remembered that way. And it just made me more and more aware to appreciate the moment and not, you know, sacrifice it in any means that I don't want to do. So if I want to live today by treating others fairly, then that's what I want to do. If I don't want to be taken advantage of, then I tell people I don't want to take advantage of. Basically, speak your mind. Kind of rambled there a little bit, so I apologize for that. Yeah, did your plane almost crash? No, no, it was just when you're on a plane, you know, four, five, six times a month, at least for me, I just stare out the window and go, huh, if I died today, for <laughs> plane, right, what would I be pissed off about? <laughs> and and it made me build, so thanks for helping me clarify it, but the, uh, it helped me build the realization that there was a lot of stuff that I still wanted to do in my life that if I were to die today, what would make me upset about that? And it came down to where I wasn't being myself. I was trying to impress others too much. And I learned that all that really matters is what I think of myself, not what others think of me. And as long as I'm being true to me, then that's all that really matters. And so that's kind of what I got out of that. It's kind of a long way to answer your lightning round question. but Yeah, we'll use more lightning-based answers in the following that's ones, it. right? Yeah. <laughs> all right, best ever deal you've done? Well, actually, that $100,000 deal on the third transaction because that made me realize there's a lot of money in real estate and I never actually owned the house and it was all double enclosed. And really quickly, what's a double enclose? Double enclose is when you tie up a contract with, uh, let's say a homeowner for $100,000. You submit that contract into escrow and then you go do another purchase and sales contract with an investor for, let's say $110,000 and you submit that contract into escrow 
where on the initial contract, you are the buyer. And on the second contract, you are the seller. And then you do a simultaneous close in escrow where the money for the proceeds of the buyer for the final buyer of $110,000 goes to escrow. And then for a split second, you show up on title and they transfer the remaining $100,000 to uh, the ultimate seller. And you keep the 10000 in between minus escrow fees and closing costs. So it's a little bit different now. There's some different rules these days. But back when I did that transaction a little over 10 years ago, it was a lot easier to do. And that was just similar to wholesaling or assigning. Yeah, is there a capital gains tax on that? It's like a, it's more of an income-based fee. So it's because you're, you're short-term capital gains on it. So you get charged income tax on it instead. Got it. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? The partnership I have right now, we actually are, we're getting back on the boat for expansion and we've leveraged our, we're leveraging our funds to raise more capital with the funds that we actually have. And that'll allow us to have a tremendous more operating capital to expend back out to the United States and see where it goes from there and do it better than last time. Best ever way you like to give back? That one's really easy for me. So I really enjoy search and rescue and emergency medicine. So I'm an active volunteer. King County is one of the, which is Seattle, is one of the most active search and rescue units in the United States for that are all volunteer based. And so I truly enjoy that, plus ski patrol and doing any kind of volunteer emergency medicine system. I'm looking to soon become a volunteer firefighter. I, just, I really enjoy helping people in that type of environment. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Uh, not getting everything in writing. <laughs> so the, I had my past partnership failed and it ended up being tremendously more difficult to go through any attorney issues or anything like that because none of us really wrote any of the stuff down and it was just almost all verbal and it, it got pretty messy from that but I learned through that major major mistake that everything's in writing now. I wish it was still a handshake deal kind of a society but uh, in order to protect yourself uh, just get it all in writing and that's what I do now. And what's the best ever place the best ever listeners can reach you? The best ever listeners can reach me directly on biggerpockets.com. Just look up my profile, just Tarl Yarber, spell that, and you'll find me there. Awesome. And it's T-A-R-L, last name Y-A-R-B-E-R. Tarl, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for sharing your best ever advice. Thanks for talking about how to identify a new market whenever you're looking to bring your flipping business into another market. Your insight on the the fund was very interesting as well and how you've kind of scaled back the number of investors and uh, now you know you've you've got less people but higher net worth or higher higher um, dollar values per investor. Your best ever advice on being a professional in the industry and and um, kind of just following the golden rule right like just follow the golden rule treat others like you'd like others to treat you and then you know talking you know i i go back to the the approach that you were mentioning whenever you're looking at the market and one of the things that stood out to me is uh, one is one one thing i should have known and perhaps i did subconsciously but whenever you said it, it really resonated that good flip markets have a lack of land. And I guess any good real estate market would have a lack of land as well, but especially good flip markets, because as you said, you've got a set number of land, raw land and, and homes that are available. So you've got to improve them 
as more and more people move there and there's increased demand and that's what is kind of a perfect storm for for flipping markets and talking about the difference in between low volume high margin or low margin high volume and your preference to do the low volume high margin because you've got uh, less headaches but then the downside is that you're you're spread across fewer properties so you're risk is increased as more from a, uh, a numbers standpoint, number of deals. But again, you, you've kind of got, you can also argue that your risk is mitigated because you've got more focus on fewer deals. So I, I think you kind of can look at it both sides. Thanks so much for being on the show. This has been a wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed learning from you and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Joe.